Well, if you thought the pandemic was over and done with, guess what? It's not. This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Melissa Ross, and ahead this hour, COVID cases are spiking once again around the state. We'll speak with public health experts about their new recommendation to mask up once again. Also, why Florida is the only state not to pre-order COVID vaccines for very young children. Then later, the Florida Supreme Court looks at a challenge to a state gun law. You can join the conversation. It's 305-995-1800, right here on the Florida Roundup, with your calls right after the news. Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host Tom Hudson is off this week. Well, kids under five could be approved as soon as next Tuesday for the COVID vaccine, this per the Food and Drug Administration. The CDC will make an official decision this weekend. But Florida is the only state in the nation not to order fresh doses of the vaccine for young children. On Thursday, Governor Ron DeSantis railed against providing COVID-19 vaccines to very young kids, saying Florida will not set up any state programs to administer vaccinations for toddlers or infants. Doctors can get it, hospitals can get it, uh, but there's not going to be any state programs uh, that are going to be trying to, uh, you know, get COVID jabs to infants and toddlers and newborns. Uh, That's not something that we think uh, is appropriate. To be clear, vaccines for very young children won't be banned in Florida. Now, DeSantis said COVID-19 shots for small kids have not gone through enough testing or clinical trials to determine that they're effective. His position flies in the face of most public health experts, the Centers for Disease Control, the FDA, Johns Hopkins Medicine, Mayo Clinic. They've all emphasized that the vaccine is safe and effective and has urged the public to get the shot to protect against the virus. Now, the governor's announcement about COVID vaccines for very young children, kids under five, comes just as cases are spiking again around the state. We begin the hour here on the Florida Roundup with a closer look at those numbers and also what the governor's announcement on vaccines for young children might mean for parents. We're pleased to welcome Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville. Hi, Chad. Hi, good morning. Good to have you. Also with us, Dr. Bernard Ashby, cardiologist and the Florida lead for the Committee to Protect Health Care. Dr. Ashby, good to be with you. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. And here's our question to callers. What's your reaction to news that Florida is the only state in the nation not to pre-order COVID vaccines for children under the age of five. We're still in the pandemic, despite everybody's weariness with this, too. So we want to hear your thoughts about COVID today on the show. It's been a while since we've talked about this. Let's get into it. Give us a call. 305-995-1800. Anywhere you are in the state, 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Uh, Dr. Ashby, if I may, let's begin with you. Uh, You are the Florida lead for the Committee to Protect Health Care. What's your reaction to the governor uh, 
going his own way, we will be the only state in the nation not to pre-order COVID shots for kids under five. Well, yeah, good afternoon again. And again, it's a pleasure to be here. So what what we're seeing from Governor DeSantis is consistent with his pattern of politicizing uh, this pandemic or the um, COVID-19 disease. And uh, this is yet another uh, salvo in in his ongoing campaign against uh, any mitigation measures related to to the uh, virus. And so for him to uh, simply turn down a program that's offered by the the federal government uh, is just indicating that he's more concerned about making a political statement than actually discussing the science. Uh, Now, the uh, FDA statement on this is saying the agency has determined that the benefits of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines outweigh any known or potential risks in the pediatric populations. Uh, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo has also come out against the COVID vaccine for young children. Uh, Dr. Ashby, what about the governor uh, disagreeing with the majority of public health experts that this vaccine hasn't been fully vetted for very young children? So I think you, you'd be surprised by my answer because, um, you know, I've often been associated with, you know, more of the, um, in terms of the political framework with the um, Democrats and the liberals with regards to my takes on uh, the pandemic. However, if you look at my record, uh, I've been pretty um, committed to the science. And so the uh, vaccines uh, for Moderna and Pfizer uh, in the five and under uh, demographic uh, shows actually um, pretty decent efficacy when it comes to preventing symptomatic disease but there was no statistical significance with regards to uh, prevention of hospitalization and death. And this might be related to the fact that the studies were underpowered uh, for that um, outcome, given the fact that one, uh, the hospitalization and death rate in that population is very low when compared to all the other demographics. Uh, Also, uh, the number of patients that they included, Pfizer, for example, only had 2000 patients when compared to their uh, adult study which had 30,000 patients. So uh, that uh, does show, um, you know, that the power was relatively low. However, uh, my my take is that the the rate of severe death and hospitalization and, uh, I'm sorry, death and hospitalization and severe disease uh, is, is again, very low in this population. And uh, there was a recent CDC study that showed that 75% of that specific population had seropositivity, meaning that they had antibodies and were exposed at some point to the virus. And, and this, these studies did not study that. So in general, uh, with regards to the vaccines, um, the benefit in this particular population is much lower than when compared to uh, the adults, particularly the older adults, 16, up, 16 above. Thanks for that. Let's go now to Chad Nielsen. He is Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at U of Health Jacksonville. Chad, uh, as we're getting this news about Florida standing alone and not um, encouraging the COVID vaccine for kids under five, this does come at a time as the virus has uh, 
started to spike up again around the state. What is the current situation here in Florida when it comes to COVID? Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on again. So uh, the current situation is we know that COVID cases are rising. The CDC uh, released data from last week uh, saying that Florida had roughly 70,000 plus new cases of COVID-19 between June 3rd and June 9th. Um, That 70,000 cases is the same amount of cases that we saw in the previous two weeks uh, to that period. So uh, we don't yet have the data uh, today. Uh, The state only releases their their COVID-19 data uh, every two weeks. That report should drop this evening, and I expect to see uh, large increases in COVID-19 across the state of Florida, uh, as well as a, a spike in the percent positivity. And what we don't see is all of the at-home tests that have been occurring uh, because most individuals who take an at-home test for COVID-19 are are not uh, uh, turning those results into the health department to be counted. So uh, typically, as has been the case throughout the pandemic, whatever we see from the state report uh, probably is is not capturing at-home tests uh, because those go unreported by the people doing them. Sometimes they're not accurate either. At least that's uh, the anecdotal information we're, we're getting uh, what are the the current recommendations then? You know, when you go around, Chad, you don't see hardly anyone wearing a mask anymore, but aren't people being encouraged to mask up again if they go into a crowded indoor space? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, many counties throughout the state of Florida are now on the CDC's uh, high risk category uh, for COVID-19 transmission. So uh, most of the state just a couple of months ago were, were in the low category, meaning basically mitigation efforts in the general public uh, could be could be dropped. But uh, now that the majority of the state and including most of the major cities are in that high risk category, uh, that that includes the recommendation to mask uh, in certain scenarios to mask if you're immunosuppressed or uh, especially if you're not uh, vaccinated uh, because the likelihood of transmission is extremely high in most of Florida. We're talking COVID spread on the Florida Roundup this Friday uh, as we're getting ready to head into that three-day Juneteenth weekend. Mask up again. That's the overwhelming advice from public health experts. At the same time, we've learned this week Florida will be the only state in America not to pre-order vaccines for kids under five. They could be green-lighted to get the vaccine as soon as next week. Give us a call wherever you hail from in the state, 305-995-1800. Brian in Tallahassee. Hi, Brian. Hello. How are you all today? Great, thanks. What are your thoughts? Uh, Well, I'm just wondering, since the uh, governor said that no state resources will be used for these uh, childhood vaccinations, does that mean that uh, folks that are on Medicaid uh, are not going to be uh, not not going to receive any uh, state help, or they're not going to be able to get the shots through Medicaid, or they, they're going to have to pay for them themselves? Thanks for that question. You know, let's go to Bernard Ashby, uh, Committee to Protect Healthcare. The vaccine will be available, uh, not necessarily through a state program. Can you clarify that for him? Yes. Uh, so, to be clear, uh, DeSantis's uh, uh, refusal to uh, pre-order vaccines for that population is more of a political stance than a, an actual um, issue when it comes to administering the vaccine. And it's actually sending a message as well. Um, as far as I know, uh, Medicaid will be covering the vaccine for that population. 
Um, and the vaccine will be available uh, through all the, the traditional means, including uh, at the drugstores uh, for that population. Uh, and so kids are going to be able to get the vaccine uh, if their parents uh, approve uh, and decide to do that. But um, what DeSantis is doing is, is trying to get the, the reaction that we're giving him right now, which is to, to, to and communicate to his base uh, essentially in saying that um, you know he's he's really against any form of mitigation measures, and uh, you know that that's unfortunate because it's sending the wrong message. Particularly if you have a child that's high risk, meaning that they have pre-existing conditions where they would benefit from the vaccine. Uh, but if you're you know listening to this governor and uh, the folks surrounding him, you would likely get the wrong message. You, so you disagree with the governor's position that there isn't enough evidence to justify this shot for young kids? Well, it's this is a you know kind of a controversial topic, but um, I, I'm I'm very clear that if you're high risk and you're seronegative, uh, the vaccine should have clear benefits. Um, however, uh, a recent CDC tr- uh, study came out that showed that. Uh, 75% of children uh, do have antibodies. And again, this was not studied. And we know from uh, a number of studies, including uh, a recent New England Journal of Medicine study that came out this month and uh, a JAMA study that came out uh, early this year that indicated that folks who are previously infected have uh, uh, equal protection to two doses of the mRNA vaccine or even uh, better, according to the uh, recent New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, study. So, um, you know, when you're you're evaluating these patients, uh, particularly this population, you're always doing a risk-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. And if you have uh, a child that's seropositive, that's low risk, uh, I find it uh, hard to recommend this vaccine to. So, to, would you, to, if you had, if you had a kid that age, would you not vaccinate your own child? I have a two and a half year old, and he is not getting okay. the vaccine. Uh, he okay. was actually exposed to Omicron and uh, did quite well. It's 305-995-1800. Deborah in St. Cloud. Hi, Deborah. Hi, how are you? All right, thanks. What do you think about all this? I think this is Mr. DeSantis' sweep for his victory campaign for 24 or 28. And every single thing, he will be a watered-down, more prim version of Trump so that the people who don't feel like Trump is the guy will pick DeSantis. And this is one of his many things, ranging from freedom of expression to voting to gerrymandering and so forth. We're getting lots of tweets giving that same opinion. Uh, Thank you for your call, Deborah. Uh, Here's a tweet from Terry. DeSantis is putting his own opinion ahead of medical professionals. He's putting politics ahead of the welfare of citizens in Florida. Uh, Chad Nielsen, I know you don't like to get into politics. You just want to stick to the science and, and, and educate us about the dangers of the disease and how we can protect ourselves. Um, that said, uh, there is a politics around vaccination and COVID, just like just about everything else in America. What's your advice to Floridians out there who are trying to get good information, trying to stay healthy, trying to protect their kids? Uh, we've heard from Dr. Ashby. He would not vaccinate his two-and-a-half-year-old. Some parents will do that, though. They will choose to get the vaccine for their youngest children. What advice are you giving families, Chad? 
Yeah, so uh, you're right. Vaccines have been a, unfortunately a political topic for a long time, but it's only amplified during this, this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what advice I would give parents and anyone else out there uh, is to seek multiple sources from, from trusted, uh, trusted individuals or agencies, right? So for parents, uh, we typically here at our hospital system recommend that they, they follow up and they look at uh, guidance and information from the American Cat Academy of Pediatrics. We have over 2,500 pediatricians in the state of Florida uh, that belong to AAP. Uh, and AAP has typically followed the recommendations from the CDC and others about vaccinating kids. And so uh, that's just one group that I think parents can look towards uh, if they have confusion uh, about who to believe or what to believe. But in general, um, it's all about looking at your sources and figuring out who's got motivations behind it, right? Uh, I'm not saying everything on social media is wrong, but 90% of it probably is. And so turn to those trusted sources, universities, academic health centers, uh, national organizations of physicians. Uh, those are going to be the trusted places to go to find out what the consensus of medical advice is going to be. And, and before we go to break, Chad, uh, you mentioned getting a test uh, if you're at all concerned. Mm -hmm. Since home tests aren't always accurate, do you recommend people try to get a PCR test for COVID, given that it it is so high, the transmission rates are so high again in the state? Yeah, so right now, I think a really effective strategy for most people, if they think they have COVID-19, uh, is really to first and foremost, don't go out in public, right? Self-isolate, treat yourself as if you have it. And, and if you feel like using a, a at-home test, just know that it could have uh, variable results. PCR tests are the gold standard. So particular for people who uh, may be missing work and they have to provide evidence or uh, for insurance purposes, PCRs are going to be the way to go. But most importantly versus testing, is that really, uh, if you're vaccinated and boosted and you still are getting sick anyways, just isolate, stay at home uh, and, and remove yourself from the population so we're not transmitting COVID-19 anymore. And if you've been vaccinated folks and you haven't gotten a booster shot, go get one. Uh, yours truly right here, uh, guys, I've had four Moderna shots, both vaccination shots and two boosters. Kids 5 to 11 are now eligible for their first booster shot, too. We are speaking here on the Florida Roundup this Friday with two great experts on COVID. Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville, and Dr. Bernard Ashby, cardiologist and the Florida lead for the Committee to Protect Healthcare. As we're talking about COVID spiking once again around the state, we learned this week that Florida is the only state in the union that is not going to pre-order COVID vaccines for kids under five. It's expected they'll be approved to get the COVID jab as soon as Tuesday of next week. And so many folks waiting online to give their opinion about this. We're going to get to a few more of your calls in just a moment. It's 305-995-1800. Let us know your thoughts. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back.
Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host, Tom Hudson, is off this week, and we're continuing the COVID conversation now with Chad Nielsen at UF Health Jacks and Dr. Bernard Ashby, Committee to Protect Healthcare. Lots of calls. It's 305-995-1800. As we get your reaction to news that Governor Ron DeSantis has decided alone among all 50 states not to seek help from the federal government to get COVID vaccines to kids aged five and younger. They're likely to be approved for the shot next week. Donna is holding on the line in Deerfield, Florida. Hi, Donna, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, The question, first question I have is, of those reported under the spike that we're currently having, what percentage of those who are getting COVID in this spike condition, non-vaccinated people? How many people sick with COVID are unvaccinated? Uh, there's been a lot of data collected to that end, Donna. Dr. Bernard Ashby, Committee to Protect Healthcare. I don't know that you might have the latest numbers on that, but could you try to answer her question? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, but... What I can tell you is that, you know, Omicron has changed the equation uh, because it's so stealthy um, and is able to escape the immune system, regardless of your vaccination, you have some prior immunity. And therefore, uh, there's a higher percentage of patients who are vaccinated who are becoming symptomatic. And uh, there's a much higher percentage of patients who are who have been previously vaccinated that are entering the hospital system. Now, um, uh, again, I, I'm not up to date on the most current data. But it's always going to be skewed because a large po- portion of our population has been vaccinated. And so uh, the numbers are not are not going to really reflect uh, whether or not the vaccine effectiveness in the community uh, is do- doing its job. Because there's, there's, again, an overrepresentation of individuals who are currently vaccinated in the community. Chad Nielsen. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I'd agree with that. We are seeing an uptick of patients um, who are testing positive, uh, having previously been vaccinated because Omicron um, really has, and its subsequent variants have really changed the landscape. So uh, right now, I will tell you, though, the hospitalized patients that we have in the UF Health Jacksonville system, the large majority of them uh, who have tested positive for COVID-19 are are not what we would call primary cases of COVID-19, right? So uh, they're here for a surgery or for some other reason, and then have also tested positive for COVID uh, almost as an afterthought. So um, we're, we're seeing a good amount of vaccinated and va- unvaccinated patients uh, with, uh, uh, with COVID-19 positive tests right now, but it's definitely a change after Omicron. Uh, Chad, isn't it uh, fair to say that if this nation had reached herd immunity, uh, reached that 70% threshold of vaccinated people, we, would, we'd have, we wouldn't be still going through variant after variant in quite the same way. I seem to recall you and other public health experts talking about this earlier in the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so what we know about sort of vaccinology and, and the greater uh, picture of pandemics uh, across history is that, right, to reach herd immunity, you really need sort of population events to happen quickly. So when the vaccine rolled out, 
you need a, a global audience to uptake that vaccine quickly. Something that we saw, for instance, with smallpox and how it was eradicated. There was a, an organized global campaign to do that, do it quickly. That way it, it sort of uh, strangles off the virus's ability to spread and therefore mutate. So uh, I, I think this sort of meandering uh, vaccine campaign here in the United States, but also across the world, uh, really um, you know, contributed the fuel for all of these variants because we, we didn't have that large all at one point population event. And, and I'm not sure uh, that we ever could have, right? So I have never been a fan of thinking that herd immunity would ever be reached, but uh, certainly uh, the, the fact is, is even here in Florida, only 74% of, of eligible people are vaccinated, even lower depending on where you go in the state. We just don't mm-hmm. have enough vaccine uptake. Paul in South Miami. Hey, Paul, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Hi, great program, very timely. And I guess I'm going to be redundant because I have, well, four of my grandchildren down the street, three of whom are vaccinated. And the one that turns for today, I'm sure his parents will take him right in. And I guess I'm angry and weary that this governor is willing to put us at risk, um, and now our children are at risk. Um, you know, parents should go to their pediatrician and get good advice. And he's just running for president, and he's willing to sacrifice us all. And I'm just getting very, very tired of it. So I know other people have said the same thing, but I, uh, <clears throat> I'm just weary of this guy who is willing to throw us all under the bus just for his uh, political ambitions. So, but that's all I have to say, really. Thanks for your opinion, Paul. Uh, Mark on the line from Kissimmee. Mark, you're thinking about whether to vaccinate your kids? Yes. Hi. This basically, you know, weigh in a lot of the information. Um, I, I would, you know, I would suggest that responsible parents, um, know not try to cloud their judgment with politics that would that would be the first uh, step i would suggest um but keeping the information like dr ashby was saying and thanks for having somebody on there that was refreshing to give us good correct information a real-time data of this of this virus and what's happening um it i know the numbers are spiking here in the state uh we live in a very uh, international state. People are traveling from all over uh, other countries, let alone. So numbers are always going to spike here, but those are spiking within the adult population. Our program, I thought today was about children and my children. I have a daughter who's under four years old. She's three years old. And I think I'm trying to concentrate just on that information. And I do know if we follow the numbers, as Dr. Ashby has done, you know, the death rate from COVID-19 symptoms and uh, are, are minuscule in that age bracket. The gentleman there, the grandfather, the grandparents, um, they're going to want to be around kids, yes, but this vaccination is not going to 100% stop the virus from transmitting to other people. That I do know. My daughter does not have under any underlying medical conditions, which probably <laughs> logic would tell us all those deaths that we had on numbers of kids already under four from covid they had underlying conditions already existing. And I'm sure any pediatrician would recommend that they would get a vaccine if they had that. Just like my uh, 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 grandparents, my parents at 80, 85 years old, they
they are at high risk, so sure, they would have the vaccine. But my child has no history um, right now of medical illness and stuff. And so being around other kids, there, there's going to be a natural immunity she has to build up. And um, I guess that's what I'm looking at is that I have not gotten the vaccine. The, the vaccine, I have used my health uh, 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 with a natural immunity that I had retained at one time. But uh, uh, but the one question real quick, I want to ask both uh, perhaps the doctors or the medical profession. Are any of you gentlemen aware right now of any facility, mm-hmm. any doctors, who, which I have heard in the past when COVID came out and uh, was rampant a uh, year, year and a half ago, was if I brought my daughter into a facility, would they would they not treat her because she is not vaccinated? If she was not vaccinated and I brought her to a facility and maybe she was sick from something else or whatever, and okay, they're going to ask me, it, what, what, what would be the answer to that? Thank you very much. Thank you. And a lot in that call. Uh, we're coming up against a break. Um, Dr. Ashby, we'll close with you. To be clear, uh, this vaccine could be approved as soon as Tuesday for kids under five. Uh, We've heard a range of opinions about this. I'm wondering, though, you know, parents have to vaccinate their kids for a lot of ailments, not all of which are seen as deadly. They're mandated. So could the COVID vaccine eventually just be added to the mandated vaccination schedule? Dr. Ashby. Yes, uh, and uh, and I appreciate the callers and the last caller. I definitely um, uh, understand your uh, concerns. Uh, but to be clear, the uh, schools, they, they don't require vaccination. They require immunization. And so uh, there are... Uh, well, but it's shots. You're getting, you're getting shots. No, your kids that, are that getting a not, bunch that, of shots. Well, well correct. Uh, but for instance, so something like the mumps. Um, you just have to prove that you have uh, seropositivity, not necessarily that you've been vaccinated. And uh, there, there's been a, a, a pretty much a blackout uh, with, with the media with regards to uh, natural immunity, given the po- politics of it all. And when you have reputable journals like New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and Lancet all agreeing that natural immunity is uh, just uh, is on par, if not better than the mRNA vaccines. To exclude those children uh, does not serve the the intended public health com- uh, uh, purpose, and, and you're, you're really pursuing a political agenda at that point. So, uh, I, I I I agree with you that uh, there are other conditions that are um, uh, require, required that you prove immunization for. And if they want to do that, they, they should also uh, uh, follow the science and and acknowledge national immunity because it it is a thing, regardless of the political discourse around it. Well, thank you both. Dr. Ashby with Committee to Protect Healthcare, Chad Nielsen, UF Health Jacks. Gentlemen, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, it's been two years plus now since businesses all had to shut down because of the pandemic. That hit every business hard, but particularly Black-owned businesses in Florida. According to the Florida Chamber of Commerce, Florida ranks second in the nation for Black and Hispanic-owned and women-owned businesses. WMFE's Talia Blake is looking into this and joins us now to see how they're doing these days. Hi, Talia. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So what did your reporting find as far as how Black-owned businesses fared in Florida during the pandemic? 
So I spoke with the president and CEO of the Central Florida Urban League, Glenn Gilzean, and during our conversation, it turns out that a report came out at the beginning of the pandemic that showed that 40% of Black businesses closed. And when you look at the amount of Black businesses that received PPP loans, that number was also very small. And Glenn actually made the argument that Central Florida was really ground zero for looking at how Black businesses were doing during the pandemic, because a lot of the businesses here in Orlando are tied to tourism. So once tourism shut down, a lot of those businesses shut down too. Mm, Sure. And the ones that made it through, how are they doing now? So you mentioned that report by the Florida Chamber of Commerce. And yes, Florida is has the most Black-owned businesses that are starting. They're right second in the nation for businesses that are starting, Black-owned, women-owned, and Hispanic-owned. But Glenn made the argument that businesses aren't really thriving here. And one of the reasons for that is their relationship with financial institutions. Many Black businesses don't have that key relationship to have someone in their support team to show them kind of some of the ropes that they're missing. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. So if you're looking to grow your business or open a new one in the coming months, uh, particularly if you're a Black-owned business, what's the outlook look like uh, and what organizations exist to help this community of business owners really get on a solid footing or grow upon uh, whatever they've been able to build coming out of what's just been an incredibly difficult time for all small business owners? Right. So there are definitely resources like, you know, your SBA loans and stuff like that. But there's also the African-American Chamber of Commerce here in Central Florida, uh, the African-American Chamber of Commerce, the Urban League of Central Florida and Black Black Business Investment Fund actually recently just came together for this initiative called Enterprising Black Orlando. And what they're doing with that is looking at ways to gain access to funding and other resources that have historically been difficult due to racially unjust policies and practices. So over the next 12 months, they plan to do this survey to Black nonprofits and business leaders to identify systemic issues in funding these organizations and provide local leaders with an understanding of the racial wealth divide right here in Florida. Let me give a shout out to the Black Business Bus Tour website. Uh, That's over in Tampa. Uh, providing uh, support in that part of the state as well. And, you know, it really is remarkable to see that Florida ranks second in the nation for Black-owned, Hispanic-owned, and women-owned businesses, uh, Talia. Uh, Lots of enterprising entrepreneurs out there. uh, And there is a framework, as you said, to support this group, but it could be better, right? It could be better. Um, It could always be better, but at least there's a grassroots effort to make it better. And there are things in place to get those resources to black owned business owners. That's good. Now, when you talk to small business owners uh, of all backgrounds after the, the pandemic of two plus years of closing, then opening again, dealing with getting the PPP money, uh, trying to maintain the customer base, grow it. 
When you talk to business owners, Talia, in Central Florida, what's the most common feedback you're hearing from them? What are, what are the challenges they're dealing with today? Is it a supply chain and labor issue more than anything? Yeah, I would say it's a supply chain and labor issue, but I would also say it's, for some, it's a financial issue. For some, it's not. Uh, everyone was in different places when the pandemic hit. I One story is sticking out to me um, right now where a business owner, he was getting ready to move into his office space right before the pandemic hit. Um, the pandemic hit, kids came home, he turned into his business owner and also a principal and a teacher at the same time to his kids. So he had to postpone moving into his office. But now that the pandemic is, you know, we're about two years after that shutdown, he's moved into his office. He's been able to gain more clientele. And now he's, you know, in a position where he thought he would be about a year ago. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting uh, up here in Jacksonville where I sit, I still see a lot of empty commercial office space. Uh, a lot of people left their leases and haven't come back. Not all the way anyway, right? Right. I mean, it's still definitely a struggle. It seems like two years is a long time, but it's really not been that long of a time. And, and let's be clear, there are challenges black owned businesses might face that aren't faced by others. And that, that's really the thrust of your reporting, right? Right, right. So that same business owner that I was just that I just mentioned who had to wait to move into his office space, he runs a small wealth management firm. And when he was looking at getting other jobs in the financial industry before he had started his own business, he was basically told during an interview that because of the color of his skin, he would not be able to represent the firm in certain cities. And wow. that was one of the things. Yeah. And that was one of the things that that, give, that gives you an idea. And I'm so sorry to cut you off. Check out Talia Blake's reporting at WMFE. We'll Thank be you. right back. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host Tom Hudson is off this week. Well, this month, the Florida Supreme Court heard arguments in a long-running legal challenge over guns. Now, this involves a 2011 law passed here in the state. It actually punishes local governments if they try to pass strict gun regulations. This hearing came amid more tragic mass shootings in America, of course. And as we watched from down here in Florida, the first gun safety legislation to be developed in the U.S. Congress in decades. Let us know your thoughts about this. It's 305-995-1800. Tweet us at Florida Roundup. We get more now from Matt Dixon. He's been covering this for Politico. Hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Good to have you. So what's the argument heard by the Florida Supreme Court on this? 
Well, quick, just to, to step back one second, in, in the late 80s, the as you had mentioned, the, the basically the Florida law changed, not allowing, you know, 67 counties and hundreds of cities to pass strict gun laws. Basically, they can't pass gun laws stricter than the state legislature, which doesn't often pass gun laws. So that's not going to change no matter what the Florida Supreme Court does. But as, as you mentioned, there's penalties that were added in 2011. And that's what's at issue here. And basically, those who are challenging it, uh, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed and, and a couple dozen local officials and local governments are saying is that violates what's called legislative immunity or this idea that that is recognized idea that that elected officials in their official capacity can make decisions without being necessarily penalized specifically for those decisions or kind of be deposed or questioned in court about their motivation for making official decisions so that's what those who are challenging these penalties say that you, you can't do this because you can't penalize elected officials like this while well, the state is arguing in in, in is arguing that, well, all, all they're doing is trying to add penalties to an existing statute, which happens all the time. The state has the ability to do this, and we, they do it in other areas. So those are like the kind of contours of, of what the Supreme Court had heard, and they, they have yet to rule. Hmm. Well, the Florida Supreme Court has uh, tacked to the right in recent years. So what might we expect uh, from these justices on this matter? I think without question, the tone of oral arguments was skeptical. Um, um, Chief Justice Charles Kennedy, the Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court, was one of the more vocal uh, questioners during oral argument. And he said that the the it was, quote, mystifying to him, the argument that plaintiffs were making. And basically, he, he said, you know, the, the state has long allowed the state legislature to preempt regulations to the to the legislature. Basically, the idea being that the legislature can pass a bill that says local governments can't regulate a specific issue, in this case, gun. He says that's been longstanding law, so he doesn't totally understand the arguments being made by by plaintiffs um, because he's sort of philosophically aligned with with the, the you know the, the court's majority at this point. I think there's probably some expectation that that plaintiffs' arguments aren't going to go very far with the Florida Supreme Court. You know, of course, we don't know that yet, but but Governor DeSantis has had you know three appointments and, and sort of remade the Florida Supreme Court in his own image and his own sort of you know judicial leanings. So I think there is an uphill battle for plaintiffs here, but you know until an opinion is issued, I, I, we we don't know for sure. Now, at the same time, a panel that's responsible for nominating new justices to the Florida Supreme Court has submitted a list of six candidates. What what do we know about them? Uh, well, there is a justice who uh, Governor DeSantis wanted to put on the court a few years ago. I forget specifically which year. And she was unable to, she, she didn't, I believe it was a Florida, there's a Florida bar requirement that you have to be a licensed attorney for a decade, for 10 years. She did not meet that threshold by a little bit. So her, her process sort of got upended, but she's back on the list. Uh, D- Judge Francis, I believe her name is. And so I think there is an expectation that she is probably going to get selected because DeSantis wanted her previously. And she, um, you know, is, is sort of uh, in line with the, you know, the, the conservative, you know, legal school of thought. And I think there is an expectation that she is, uh, to the degree we can know a front runner, she would be the front runner. Hmm. Well, as we watch that, you know, here in Florida, the Republican dominated legislature did pass some gun safety reforms in the wake of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. 
And we saw uh, somewhat of a breakthrough in the U.S. Congress over gun reform uh, in the wake of a mass shooting in Buffalo, another in Uvalde, Texas, and other mass shootings. And so if if you could, Matt, talk a little bit about the politics of that in a, in a state like Florida, which is dominated by a conservative legislature, but at the same time did pass some reforms on this issue of gun violence. Yeah, the, the politics, I think, have moved a little bit. It was a Republican legislature then in the wake of, of Parkland, just like it is now. But I don't think that legislation would pass today. Um, everyone's gotten a, a little more, uh, you know, heels dug in in their position. Um, that bill itself, Republicans who voted for that bill after the Parkland shooting are actually getting it used against them in Republican primaries at this point as sort of gun control, anti-Second Amendment. So the climate, the perception, the messaging on that post-Parkland bill that, that passed a very Republican legislature was signed by a Republican governor and Rick Scott, I don't think would pass this version of the Florida legislature. So the idea that that, that anything we have seen, um, you know, as far as the uptick in, in, in mass shootings and, and the tragedy that goes along with those, I, I don't I don't think there's any climate here in Florida and in Tallahassee to to, to pass any sort of gun legislation that includes, you know, uh, you know, the, the idea that the 2018 bill that is law probably wouldn't pass this version of the legislature. Hmm. And you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Warren on the line in Delray Beach. Hi, Warren. Thanks for calling the show. Go well, ahead. Well, thank you for allowing me to participate in this very classy program or at least I thought it was until you lowered yourself to let me in here. Uh, <laughs> no, never, never. <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you, love. I, I've been listening very carefully to uh, the station and to the sides of this issue. Please allow me to say that while I understand that under the, uh, the Bill of Rights, the right to bear arms, and I guess they mean something uh, more powerful than by wearing a short sleeve shirt is the law of the land. The uh, I've been listening to the proposed legislation to con- you know with some control in the Congress, and I hate to say it, but I find what they've proposed to be insipid, to say rather watered down and weak. One of the things I would like to see is with as they used to do, I think. When these firearms are manufactured, they're test-fired, and a test bullet with the rifling marks from the inside of the barrels uh, is on the bullet. They're kept on file at the FBI so that if a criminal uses that registered firearm, and it can be traced, you got a better chance of getting hold of them. I have a neighbor who objects to that. He said that could be used to frame you. But mm. what, finally, and I'm going to sound terrible, my wish for the people who are making a political issue of this to stay in power for other reasons, like getting rid of affordable medical care, my wish is that if they don't want controls on these things, that some nut job will use his, his or her firearm Oh now, let's let's okay, Warren. Thanks, I appreciate you calling. But um, let let me ask you, Matt Dixon. In the short time we have left, uh, 
you mentioned new gun legislation would never pass the legislature today. That said, the red flag laws that the legislature passed four years ago have been credited with saving some lives in Florida. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are. Well, I, I guess like everything else, that's going to be viewed through a partisan lens. Um, they right. have certainly been in place since 2018. There are I, I don't have the data in front of me, but there are data where, where they have kicked in and worked by uh, taking uh, you know firearms from those who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. But a lot of Republicans and, and Second Amendment folks have said that that's you know uh, you know unconstitutional and that red flag provision specifically has been sort of the focus of messaging in Republican primaries. Basically, you know, uh, Republicans who voted for it want to take your guns sort of sort of messaging um, that I alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, as we watch this case before the Florida Supreme Court, uh, new appointments to the court uh, and its conservative bent could affect a number of other issues to come before this more right wing wing court, which you've also been reporting on. Right. Yeah, I think most notably will be the the redistricting and the the congressional maps, which will probably ultimately end up in front of the Florida Supreme Court. Um, The Florida Supreme Court essentially drew the current congressional maps, but it was a much more left leaning court. Um, They they drew maps that the the then Rick Scott and the Republican legislature did not like. I think that expectation will be reversed when it gets to the court this time. So that I think there's, well, the, the court has, has, has regular oral arguments on, I guess, kind of lower profile, very important, but lower profile cases. I think the next, this, this, this gun case, and then the next real big one um, that a lot of people are looking at is redistricting, uh, which will be interesting to watch play out. Absolutely will. And always great to get your insights on this program. Matt Dixon of Politico. Hope you have a a three day weekend as we do here where I'm working. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. And happy Juneteenth, everyone. Uh, That is our show, the Florida Roundup by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Alyssa Ramos are producers. Catherine Hobbs is our associate producer. Technical director is Peter Mertz. He's also WLRN's director of radio ops with engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Josh Torres. Richard Ives answers the phones. Theme music by Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Melissa Ross. As I mentioned, have a safe and happy three-day Juneteenth weekend, and we'll be right back here again next Friday at noon. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through ABCF.